0: This letter, this epistle, has fascinated and astounded biblical scholars for almost 2,000 years. Uh, During the series, we will seek to expound upon the beautiful and amazing truths of Christ and who He is, and the resounding calls for righteous living because of who He is that we find in it. Uh, Therefore, our theme for this entire study will be Rise Above. And what we mean by that is, because Christ is exalted... And holy and true, we must live above the commonality and so-called knowledge of this world. Rising above the world's standards, we need to learn to live with our eyes set toward heavenly life, set towards the future. We must live in context to our Christ and his characteristics. Rise above now, before we delve into today's passage, which is Colossians 1 1 through 12, we need to examine. There we go. <clears throat> uh, before we delve into the passage, we need to examine the setting, the purpose, and the background of this epistle to the Colossians to understand it a little bit better. First, to whom was it written? Colossae was a city in the province of Phrygia. Uh, Phrygia is. Kind of like that right there in the first century. It's nestled in the Lycus Valley, which is right about in there. It's about 10 miles from Laodicea and Hierapolis and about 120 miles from Ephesus. Uh, The region, by all accounts, had a large population of Jews, at least larger than most other Asian provinces. Um, This may account for some of the heresy issues that we find, which includes um, extreme... Jewish legalism. Uh, this, This region happens to be included in Acts 2 when Jews from many locations around the Roman world came and heard Paul speak at Pentecost and then brought the gospel. So the first Christians to this region, or the first people to bring Christianity to this region would have come from those who first heard it at Pentecost. Although it should be noted that the one who at least seems to have, directly evangelized the city of Colossae and probably planted the church was Apophras, who was a fellow worker evangelist with Paul. Uh, The city had been prosperous. About 100 years before the birth of Christ, Colossae was one of the most important cities in this area. But by the time this book was written, it had pretty much lost most of its importance to uh, especially Laodicea and Hierapolis. But at the time, it still was uh, an important exporter of woolen fabrics. There's even a wool at the time called Colossian wool that was praised for its quality. Now, this city does not exist anymore. And if you hadn't noticed, this is actually modern day Turkey that we're looking at. Um, we have found the ruins of Colossae, and there's some really, really interesting things that they found. I recommend people to look into it. There's some artifacts um, and historical items that just so clearly show the prominence of Christianity here, um, and Judaism, um, which is also well known. The city was known for its tolerance towards religion. Uh, like I said, Judaism was actually very large in this area, but Colossae in particular was known for its tolerance. Second, when and why it was written. Now there's a whole bunch of opinions that are, I think, completely legitimate as to where Paul was and when he wrote this letter. The only importance to this, when and where, is to know the environment in which he wrote one of these letters. That changes, I think, our perspective a little bit. Now, there's a whole bunch of options and opinions, but most scholars seem to agree that it was about 8060 60 to AD 61 when he was imprisoned in Rome. Now, this is really important, because in 8060 60 is when Christianity began to stand out in the world. Previously, it had been considered just another sect of Judaism. Judaism was a legal religion uh, in Rome. But as Christianity began to distinguish itself from Judaism, Christianity actually became considered treasonous to practice. Um, One of the many reasons was that Christianity boldly proclaimed that Jesus is Lord. This was a common motto in Christians in the first century. Now it just so happens, and I believe probably on purpose, um, that a common motto among Romans was Caesar is Lord. So what the Christians were doing was stating that Jesus, not Caesar, was Lord of all. Uh, and thus Christianity very quickly became considered a threat to the empire. And uh, on top of all of this, AD 54 to 68 is when Emperor Nero had the distinction of being the first Roman emperor to openly uh, fight against and even as a, as a matter of state to attack Christianity. Nero burned down much of Rome for his own paranoid reasons and then blamed Christians. Nero had Christians sewn in the skins of wild beasts and then set dogs on them. Nero had Christian women dragged behind bulls until they were dead. Nero had Christians lit up as candles in his gardens at night, and then he would ride around in a chariot just to watch them die. Uh, Nero was also the one who had the apostle Peter crucified upside down, and eventually Paul beheaded. And the only reason Paul was beheaded instead of in some other way is because he was a citizen and he couldn't be killed in any other way. And it's in this environment that Paul wrote this letter about living a godly and righteous life because of the person and glory of Christ. It's in this environment that Paul, Paul calls Christians even today to live above this culture live above the world despite pressures and circumstances despite all these terrible things going around going on around him, he says, live above it, despite the circumstances. Finally, Paul wrote this book specifically to combat heresy, and especially Gnosticism. Um, This is a belief system that is really hard to define. Um, It's based on, at its core, seeking special knowledge that was above and beyond. And with Christian Gnostics, it was above and beyond Scripture. There's much to be said on Gnosticism. There's a lot of really interesting things there, um, but we're going to try to keep it as simple as possible today. And with the, all these convoluted forms of Gnosticism, um, some of which are actually active today, although going by different names, in Colossae, there is some sort of odd fusion of classic Gnosticism and legalistic Judaism. So the effect of the system is one that claims incredible importance of observance of circumcision uh sabbaths banning certain foods and certain drinks and then all of that mixed into the self-imposed humility of Gnosticism that includes service to angels hard treatment of your own body you'd actually beat yourself um, and then seeking the superior knowledge the fullness of the secret knowledge and then those who met the requirements would consider themselves set above everyone else they were the special people who had the fullness of the special knowledge Now, these are completely non-double. All these concepts are anti-grace. They go against everything that Christ taught, and they go against everything the apostles taught. Um, They go completely against the new covenant, the grace of God that we find in Christ. Now, we're going to move into the meat of our passage today, starting with verses 1 through 2, which is the standard reading. Uh, First, we are going to read through the whole section, and we are reading out of the ESV today. So Colossians 1, 1 through 12. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. the next slide for me? As it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Apophras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. Colossians 1, 1-2, this is laid out in a a very simple way the common epistle form of that time. Um, You find first stating who the letter is from, Paul and Timothy, and then who the letter is to, the Saints and Faithful Brothers. Um, here we see an opening greeting that is very similar to Paul's other letters. There's just a few things that stand out especially in Colossians, though. First, the letter is addressed from both Paul and Timothy. This is uncommon for Paul. Um, at this time, Paul was Timothy's mentor, and Timothy was Paul's closest associate in ministry. Now there's all kinds of opinions of why Paul included Timothy here. Some scholars actually believe that Timothy wrote this book. Um, Some scholars say that it was just kind of a a courtesy to Timothy because he was such a close associate. Uh, But since the letter clearly has Paul in the first person many times, uh, I think that rules out Timothy as the writer, but since Paul had many associates with him at this time, and you'll see later in this book that he lists five or six different people that are with him, it probably isn't just a simple courtesy. The most likely explanation is just that they actually both wrote this letter together. They just sat down as a team and wrote the letter, which I think um, some people aren't comfortable with because they want to say Paul wrote it. There's no problem with Paul and Timothy sitting down and writing this letter together. Second, Paul states that this letter is to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. That's not a common phrase for Paul, so we need to look at why did he use it in this particular case. Now, by calling them saints, Paul means that these are God's chosen people those who are called out from the world to accept God's special blessing and God's salvation. Um, Now this should hearken back to the Old Testament for you, uh, when the Jews alone were considered part of God's chosen people. At this time, the church would have had a lot of Jews and a lot of Gentiles, and I think that what's happening here is Paul's making a subtle but pointed remark about the equality of both parties in God, Gentiles and Jews equal before God. Uh, Further, Paul goes on to call them faithful brothers in Christ. Now, faithful brothers in Christ seems a little bit unneeded here. It's kind of redundant because saints covers them having faith in Christ and covers them being part of God's family. Um, But it's likely that Paul is, again, just making a subtle point. He doesn't mean faithful as in one who has faith in Christ. Uh, He means someone who is remaining faithful, remaining in their allegiance to the gospel of Christ. And considering the rampant heresy at this time, probably among Christians especially, um, Paul is, is, I think, calling them out right away, trying to cut them to the heart, soften them up, and get ready to hear about how Christ is the truth. Remain faithful. Finally, Paul gives them his usual greeting of grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is Paul's greeting in most of his books, um, and it's really an incredible combination of two greetings of the day. The first is haran, um, which is a common greeting with Greeks and Gentiles, and it just means greeting. So what Paul does is he takes haran and then replaces it with haris, which is similar sounding in Greek, and it means grace. Then he takes the common Jewish greeting of Irene, or Shalom, in the Hebrew, which means peace, and then he just combines the two. And I think Paul does this in almost all of his books to just make it clear to everyone Jews and Greeks equal under Christ. Now our application for this section is very simple. We ought to be wary and on guard for truth or wisdom that does not conform to the true gospel. And that's the reason Paul is writing this letter to them. They were not on guard. We must be steadfast and faithful to the one and only true gospel of our salvation that we have already accepted. We need to hold fast to that gospel. Now Paul moves on to his thankfulness for the Colossians, for their faith in God and for their love for other Christians. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Apollos, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now the first thing that stands out to us in this passage is that Paul thanks God for them and prays for them frequently. And he says it again in a few verses. This letter actually tells us that Paul has never met these people. He has never visited the church. He did not establish this church. He's never met Christians here, and yet he's consistently praying for people he has never met. Now, this should make us consider our own prayer lives. How often are we praying for one another in this church? Honestly, we pray for one another every day because we need to, much less pray for Christians we've never met, which we should also be doing. This is one of the areas... Um, in which you see over and over again the Apostle Paul, and then go read the Gospels, Christ constantly makes priority of his prayer. Uh, We cannot afford to be lax in this. This is one of those areas that we just let slide by. We go on for a few weeks doing well, and then we just forget. Um, Or we, we have these short little quick prayers that we think is good enough before we eat our meals, and that's it. We're not spending real time with our God, speaking to him and listening to him. We cannot survive without a consistent and deep prayer life. Next, Paul uses a phrase that is odd for him. He says that that they're praying for them to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Normally, Paul would have said something more along the lines of to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He says to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's he's specifically singling out God the Father as opposed to God the Father and Jesus Christ. God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's odd in an epistle that's explicitly written for the purpose of exalting Christ's person that he would intentionally focus on God the Father and not Christ. Um, perhaps in a letter that elevates Christ, though, Paul wants, at the outset, right away, to anchor the person of Christ firmly to God the Father. Remember, this is an area with a lot of Jews who have become Christians. He wants to anchor Christ firmly and God the Father. Um, Now, obviously, Christ's work is supreme in creation and redemption. But the reality is that his identity and his work cannot be understood apart from his relationship with God the Father. And Paul's going to go on throughout this book in a variety of ways to suggest that Christ is himself God. So here, he's just setting up his readers for appreciating that God the Father and God the Son are one. And what Paul is thanking God for is their faith and their love for all the saints. Now, evidently, despite all the issues the Colossian Christians are having, like which we've already, we've already mentioned, the Christians were full of love for one another. Now, this is incredibly important, especially for us. Love is one of the cardinal virtues of Christianity. Now, Paul vividly states in 1 Corinthians 13 love is absolutely essential to our lives. We cannot do anything without love and have it actually have a purpose, have it actually matter. If you do it without love, it's, it's pointless. It's worthless. Furthermore, Christ, when asked what the greatest commandment was, he stated, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love is part of what is commonly called the Christian triad. It is love, hope, and joy. And next, Paul refers to the hope. Paul says um, that they have hope that is laid up in heaven. Their hope that is laid up in heaven. Now, this could either be read as referring back to the thanks that Paul had in verse 4 and their faith and love. I'm sorry. Uh, It could could refer back to the thanks, as in, we give thanks because of the hope. Or it could be read referring back to the, the, uh, the faith and love, as in, your faith and love spring forth from the hope. Now, both are good. Both are good meanings, and it's hard to read that in English. But the syntax and the context in the Greek seems likely that it's the latter, that it's the faith and love that spring forth from the hope. Paul is stating that their love And their faith are caused by the hope that is laid up in heaven. That's the hope of the future, the hope of Christ returning, the hope of eternal life. Now, it needs to be said here that hope, when you read hope in the Bible, the word hope is not the same as it is in English. When we say hope, we mean that I am looking forward to something that I'm not sure about. I hope it does not rain today. I have no control over it. I don't know if it's going to rain or not. When you say you have hope in the Bible, you have hope in the future, You're saying that you are expecting something that is assured. Hope in the Bible is assured expectation. You are 100% sure that Christ is returning for you and you have a heavenly life. That's the hope from the Bible. So when we're reading that, make sure you have that in mind. It's assured. Uh, Then he states "These, these are the truths they have already heard. He says of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. This is Paul's thesis of the entire letter. The Colossians had already heard and believed the truth and all they needed to do was stick to it, was remain faithful in the gospel of Jesus Christ that they've already heard. Scripture does not leave room for more than one truth. This is in complete contradiction to our culture. Our culture appreciates and pushes for relativism, that there is more than one truth that can be true at the same time depending completely on the circumstance and the viewpoint of one person. So even when two things contradict, both can be accepted as true, based on your circumstances. The gospel claims to be objective truth. Cosmologically, it is true. And thus, any claim that contradicts it must be objectively false. Scripture doesn't allow for other worldviews to exist and be true, alongside it that contradict it. And so we find ourselves in an interesting position because 2,000 years later, we're dealing with similar situations as these Colossians were. So we have to ask, how does one honestly and intelligently discern truth from fiction? When our world, our culture, our friends, or even our family tell us that one thing is true that contradicts Scripture, uh, how do we discern what is actually true when we're told that God and his truth is foolishness? Uh, Paul gives a pretty helpful answer in verse 9. He says that the gospel, the truth, which they had heard, had also been bearing fruit and growing among them and in all the world. How do we know the gospel of Christ is a true gospel? Because of what happens, the power that it has among us, um, the reaction to the gospel. Here Paul means this in two ways. First, the gospel is spreading. In Paul's day, the gospel had spread all over the Roman world. Um, In our day... The gospel has spread over the entire world. The gospel is almost everywhere. Second, he means that the gospel is actually growing people, working among people and among the Colossians. It's changing their life. It's making them more holy, making them more joyful, making them feel true meaning and purpose in their life. We can go around this church and find countless, literally countless stories of how the gospel of Christ has changed us and those we know how it's transformed our lives in amazing ways. The Word of God is inherently powerful on its own. The truth of God is powerful. When you accept it and you live by it, amazing things happen. You are transformed. I heard a story once of a well-known evangelist who was challenged on multiple occasions by an atheist scholar to a live debate over whether God existed. Now, the evangelist consistently declined because he realized this was a pointless activity. Now eventually the atheist became so um, uh, so pushy about it, so insistent that the evangelist finally agreed on one condition. The atheist had to bring one person to this debate, only one, whose life had been changed positively, who had gotten through drug addiction, alcoholism, uh, broken family, um, something with a positive outcome that was caused by their not believing in a God some sort of positive outcome in their life caused by not believing in God. Uh, And the evangelists offered to bring 1,000 people who had benefited in these ways from believing in God and Christ. And the atheists declined and did not ask again. Here again, we have the opportunity to rise above our world and our culture, which tells us that this is foolishness. What we're doing in here right now, I have close friends tomorrow who will scoff at this and, and joke about it. And we all have that. This is foolishness to them because they do not have the spirit. But we find peace and joy in the gospel because of the grace of God. And that's so clear. That's such a plain evidence. The gospel must be true because look at our lives. They're different. They have purpose. They have meaning. The latter half of verse 6 reads, Since the day you heard it, that is the gospel, and understood the grace of God in truth. If verse 5 is Paul's thesis, verse 6 contains his succinct sum-up of the gospel. The Colossians had heard the gospel, and they understood it. They believed it. They believed in the grace of God. They understood it as true. Um, There are some interesting cultures out there, especially in uh, the Amazon, that if something is true, it is true, and that's just it. When the leaders of the group decide something is true, everyone just accepts it as true because they've obviously proven it. And it's interesting, in our culture, we're also very independent. But the gospel has actually gone out to other cultures that as soon as it was just decided to be true, everybody believes it. And it's just such an amazing picture of how truth is just truth. And in our culture, we just don't accept that. The Colossians had heard the gospel, they understood, and they believed. The gospel at its very root is simple. It is God's grace and the requirement that you believe and accept that grace to be saved. God's grace for us is not his deciding to give us salvation in spite of our sins. God's grace is his declaring us sinless before him by his son Jesus taking all of our sins on himself and our punishment. Uh, It's like a judge in a courtroom with a guilty man standing before him. The guilty man is clearly guilty. There is no opportunity for him to argue against it. All the evidence is there. The judge has the right and duty to punish that man. He can't just simply let him go. He's been charged and found guilty. What Christ does for us is he stands up and actually accepts both the blame and the punishment for us. In this way, through God's grace, we are not declared good enough. We are declared perfect, holy, righteous. Verses 3-8 through are just full of meaty truths and subtle truths. If we take one thing away, though, it should be this. The gospel of truth has come among us and has made itself apparent in our lives. And we can see that. Because of this fact alone, we have to choose to live up to that. We have to choose to live in context to that truth. And this cannot be secluded to here in church, and it cannot be secluded to here in my thoughts. It must pervade every part of me, my speech, my actions, my work, how I treat others, or it's worthless. Paul moves on in verses 9 through 10a to give more, a little more detail about his prayer and his petitions. It reads, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul starts by saying, from the day we heard. Now he's referring back to previous sections, meaning from the day they heard of their faith, their growth, and their love for the saints. Since since that day, Paul is saying he has consistently prayed for them. Specifically, he has prayed that they may be filled with the knowledge of his that is God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's a really wordy statement with a lot of great truths in it. Firstly, may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Uh, that verb that we translate as may be filled, it's what callers, it's what scholars call a divine passive. In this case the implied agent is God. So this should be understood as may be filled by God. What Paul is praying for is that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will by God. Here we also see Paul's subtle use of a common phrase among the Gnostics, to be filled. Part of their core doctrine was to be filled with that out-of-reach secret knowledge. Paul is making it plain to the Colossians that true fullness of knowledge. Now that true, not out-of-reach fullness comes comes from God alone. comes from seeking God's will, God's knowledge. And the will of God that Paul is referring to here is not the small will of God, the what does God want me to do in this particular situation. It's talking about the overarching, deep, abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ and God's plan for the universe and for this local body. It's the big picture will of God. And this knowledge only comes from an understanding of God's Word. Prayer is essential. We've already said that. Studying and loving God's Word is also essential for us to understand God's will will and God's knowledge. Secondly, he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, Paul is making it clear what kind of knowledge and where this knowledge comes from. It's the kind of knowledge that comes from the wisdom and understanding based in the Spirit, capital S. Uh, Here it's very likely that Paul is referencing the Holy Spirit not the general spirituality of one who is in Christ. This is not plain in most English translations. But the theologian Douglas Moo suggests that it may be better to read this passage as this. Through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So the knowledge of God's will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives us. And all of that All of that vast knowledge and wisdom and understanding has to lead to right living. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Rising above this world and culture. This is an incredibly powerful statement because all of us daily struggle with that ever dominating issue of how do I act rightly? How do I not sin? How do I act like Christ? This verse, these verses are stating that knowledge of God's will, based in the wisdom and understanding of the Spirit, all of that focused on God is what leads to right living. It's saying that knowledge and understanding equal right living. Our God is not a God of chaos, disorder, confusion, That's not our God. God is orderly, He is logical, and He is intelligent, and He made us to be like Him. God wants us to understand Him and His will. He wants us to ask hard questions and seek true knowledge. Now, there are obviously things that we're never going to understand, and that's okay, um, but there is so much that God has made available for us to understand. And having that understanding, having that knowledge that is from God, leads to right living. Proverbs seven says this. Uh, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This section that we're studying should be the life verse for anyone who desires knowledge to know things, to study. If, if you desire this, if you are one of those people who desires this, you have to find it in God start by fearing God, and then by allowing God to take control of you, allowing God to fill you with his knowledge by praying and studying his word. Further, this true knowledge has to lead to righteous living and righteous act. If it doesn't, then it is useless, and it is the knowledge that puffs up, and it will be burned away with the chaff. It is pointless and useless. Now Paul, Paul goes on to describe the effects of this knowledge of God's will in verses 10b-12. He says, Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. The knowledge should lead to bearing fruit, good work, and increasing in knowledge. Now, earlier in our passage, Paul described how the gospel was bearing fruit in the world. Now he's saying that the Colossians, the Christians, should bear fruit. Now, some English translations actually translate this bearing fruit and increasing as bearing fruit in every good work, comma, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now there's actually a Kai. In the Greek, that gets left out of some of the English versions. It connects bearing fruit and increasing. Uh, The ESV, the version we're looking at today, actually does translate it correctly. Uh, But what this does is it actually emphasizes that these two things, bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge, should happen simultaneously. Paul also prays that they would be strengthened with all power, according to God's glorious might. And we should start out by saying, what is the most powerful of God's attributes? His glory. He is constantly seeking His glory. If God's power is according or based in His glorious might, that says something about the level of the power that God's willing to give us here. Now, firstly, in the Greek... The phrase, be strengthened with all power, is to the present. And what that means is that the strength provided by God is ever-flowing and constantly available. Secondly, there's a, there's a word here that we translate as all. as pos. That is a marker of the highest degree in Greek. We should paraphrase this as saying strengthened by God constantly with the greatest strength imaginable. The greatest strength imaginable. That's what God provides, and He provides it all the time. Now this is not our own strength, it is feeble and unreliable. This is the unchanging, infinite power of God who created the universe from His his will, just willed it into being. This is the power God is going to strengthen us with. In one of his meetings, D.L. Moody was explaining to his audience the truth that we cannot bring about spiritual changes in our lives by our own strength. He demonstrated it like this. He said to his audience, Tell me, how can I get the air out of this glass I have in my hand? Now one man said you could suck it out with a pump. But uh, D.L. Moody said, well, that would just shatter the glass. There are several other suggestions. And then he just picked up a pitcher of water and filled the glass. He said, now, there's no air in the glass. He then explained that victory for the child of God does not come by working hard to eliminate sinful habits but rather by allowing Christ and Christ's power to take full possession. Working tirelessly through my strength will not make me more Christ-like. Me, working hard, will lead to failure. Yielding to Christ, and again by the praying and the reading of God's Word and the listening to Him, by doing those things, yielding myself to Christ, allowing His strength and God's knowledge to fill me, that is what will change my life, not my own strength. Further, the strengthening of God should cause us to endure and have patience in all joy. And we've already mentioned the first two qualities of the Christian triad. That was love and hope. And here we see the final quality of joy. The Christian ought to live his or her life filled with joy regardless of circumstances. Now, the words we translate here, endurance and patience, are appropriate, uh, but the Greek actually holds a lot more nuance. That just is impossible in the English. Firstly, endurance. Endurance is what faith, love, and hope bring to an apparently impossible situation. You endure the situation. The second, patience, is what the Christian shows to an apparently impossible person. Endurance is the Christian's response to the situation. Patience is the Christian's response to the people. The follower of Christ must endure all hardship and pain and be patient with the most frustrating and painful of people. What's more, we have to do all of this in joy, but again, not by our own strength, by the strength of God. And on top of it, we have to do it with an attitude of thanksgiving to God who has qualified us to share in the inheritance. Now, we have Paul and Silas as an excellent example here. In Acts 16, they were thrown into prison for preaching the word of God. But they didn't sulk. They didn't feel sorry for themselves. Instead, they sang hymns of praise to God who had saved them. They are thrown into prison for nothing. They could probably be executed. And instead, they're singing hymns of praise. Uh, I'm reminded as well as of when the apostles were taken before the Jewish leaders soon after Christ's resurrection. And they were flogged and beaten and humiliated. And then they left and sung hymns of praise to God on the way home. Instead of letting the situation control them, they remembered God and they remembered their salvation. This section speaks for itself. But if we take one thing away, away from this, it should be our lives are not our own. My life is not my own. Common word in the New Testament is doulos. Usually in, in English it's servant or bondservant. Paul consistently calls himself and his associates bondservants of Christ, doulos. That's not the right translation in my opinion. Doulos in the Greek is slave. A doulos is someone who is owned by someone else. If you've read the book Philemon, Philemon talks about a slave. Someone who is actually owned. We are owned by Christ. My life is not my own. When we try to force our lives to righteousness and to sinlessness through our strength, we will fail, toiling for for nothing, for no purpose. But when I give myself over to my Master and my Savior, Christ, we have victory. So in conclusion, we've seen three applications for our lives uh, for the goal of rising above this world and culture to live for Christ, our exalted Savior. Firstly, we saw the Christian triad, love, hope, and joy. Um, These three qualities are absolutely essential if we desire to live like Christ and worthy of our Savior. We have to do all things in love, or they're worthless. We must hope in the future and the coming of Christ and that assured eternal life. And we must endure all things and all people with joy and thanksgiving. Second, we have to be on guard and remain faithful to the true gospel. There is a lot of false gospels out there. There's a lot of heresies and wisdom of this world that it can be very easy to be sucked into. But even more so, it's easier to be led astray by lies that are built upon the foundation of truth. So we must keep it simple. We must always seek what scripture tells us, and what is true and right. And anything that strays from the simple truth of the gospel that Christ died for our sins, and that all is, all that is required is faith in that free gift. Anything that does not follow that simple truth is a lie, and must be rejected. Finally, seek God's will and knowledge for your life, and your life will mimic Christ's. We have to remember that just as the gospel is simple, right living is simpler than we want it to be. We want to strive in our own power and really do something. I want to defeat my sin nature. I want to be my own Savior. But it's simpler than that. We have to follow Christ. We have to seek His will. We have to be still in God and let Him rule us. He's God. He's in control. We have to trust that He's in control, deny our own need of control, and then just rely on Him, Him to take care of it. God will not fail you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. Thank you for how powerful you are and how big you are. I just pray that you would help us to rely on you and not ourselves. I pray this in your name.